Okay, this morning, Sunday, April 22nd, and our message this morning is the Shema, Nazarites, and Mikvah. Shema, Nazarite, and Mikvah. If you're sitting there thinking, wow, I don't know what any one of those three things are, that's good. That's why you're here, is to learn. So, uh, oh Lord, you're going to hurt me today. Put that marker, Shema. If you look up Shema, it's spelled like this in English, which, uh, of course, none of these letters appear in Hebrew. So, uh, that's how you would Google it if you were going to do it. Can anybody quote the Shema? Huh? In English, it's here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. In Hebrew, it's Shema, Ya Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. From the Babylonian captivity forward, this was something that was prayed by Jewish people at least twice a day. That time period is called the Second Temple time period. It's because it was the second temple that was built in Israel. And this is the latter part of that time period is when Yeshua came on the scene. Yeshua was an observant Jew, and I can show you throughout the Word where He refers to the Shema. One time absolutely directly, but most of the time referring to it indirectly. The way that we might say, we the people, and you understand uh, the next phrase refers to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. This was something that all observant Jews prayed, and it is a pillar of the Jewish faith. The Christian faith comes right out of the Jewish faith, and I want to show you why it's a pillar. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. The Shema comes in three parts. And I'll give you all three parts today and tell you why. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in the fourth verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at the of your houses. first part of the Shema deals with lordship. And the reason this becomes important is because before you can announce yourself as part of a kingdom, before you can say, I'm a citizen of a country, before you can truly devote yourself to any monarch, you must realize that they are a monarch and choose to be their citizen. The Jews prayed this twice a day as a constant reminder to themselves. The first part of the Shema says, hey, there is no God but the one God. There is no God anywhere but Him. You need to listen to me, brothers. There is one God. The cry of Judaism is monotheism. You say, well, how on earth could that be important to us? We haven't thought deeply about it if that's your, your initial reaction. The reason it's important is because in every situation, we may not have stone idols to bow down to. Neither did Israel. We may not have wood idols to bow down to. For most of their history, they didn't have that either. But you know what we have that we bow down to? Everything that is outside God's will. See, when we say there is no God but the one God, what we are saying is we are declaring Him Lord, our controller. We're declaring that He is Lord of our lives. The reason they prayed this twice is so that they would be constantly reminded in all of their actions, nobody was to govern them except God. Now, isn't that a beautiful thing? Does that sound like Jewish legalism to you? Does that sound like something that... Uh, has been fulfilled and we should no longer listen to or read? Not at all. Not at all. I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. Our churches have gone so far away from this. It's extreme ignorance. Because the Christian, Christian walk starts in the exact same place. When you realize that there is but one Lord, there is but one Savior, 
and His rule governs your life. And then what are we taught to do? Make disciples. You want to make disciples? Where should you start? Your own house. (laughs) And then spread to your neighbors. Isn't that what the first part of the Shema teaches? Lordship. Turn with me to the 11th chapter. They pick up in Deuteronomy 11. The Shema was like notes to Jewish daily living. By the way, all of the first century believers, all of them, were Jews for the first 30, 40 years. That means they all did this twice a day. I'll show you it in the writings of James, the writings of Paul, and where Jesus answered correctly. How many of you have heard the quote, Jesus, which of these is the greatest commandment? And how have you been taught to respond to that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the second part of the Shema. But did you know that Mark actually records in the 12th chapter that Jesus said, The greatest of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Mark recorded the whole thing. The others didn't. You know why? They already knew it. Referring to that one part meant that we were encapsulating the whole thing. Why? Because they prayed it twice a day. I can walk up to any Catholic in South Louisiana and say, Hey, brother, what's the Our Father? And doesn't he know what I'm talking about from the first two words? The prayer is not called Our Father. Nowhere in the Bible is that prayer identified as Jesus said, Now I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you how to pray and title it Our Father. And yet every Catholic in South Louisiana that I've ever known, if you walk up to and say Our Father, they know exactly what you're talking about. Why is that? Because it's a part of their religious life. These Jews have the Shema as part of their life. That means that every apostle prayed the Shema. Everyone. That means that Jesus prayed the Shema at least twice a day. They were constantly in all of their actions acknowledging there is no God except the God of Israel. And He's one. Not a bad place to start, is it? Affirming the Lordship. To them, this was the kingdom of heaven. It was the kingdom of God. Because they were acknowledging the King God, the King of the kingdom of heaven, in everything that they did which put them under His rule and in His kingdom. If you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find out this is what Jesus was teaching. But in any case, we're in the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy. Starting in the 13th verse, this is where the Shema would pick up. <clears throat> so if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. I thought a Judaism was just a mixture of legalism and just a saved-by-works religion. People who think that have never read it or they've never met practicing Orthodox Jews. You can read some of Paul's epistles with a misunderstanding and not knowing his cultural background and get that idea because he's correcting a specific problem. You cannot read the 39 books of the Tanakh in their entirety and come out with the idea that Judaism is a salvation by works. Salvation. It's not. It's grace. The whole thing is grace. Listen to this. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle James said to be the Lord's own half-brother, said you need to watch out for sin. It will entice you away from God. And once it's enticed you, it will cause you to sin. And once you continue to sin, it will give birth to death. I wonder where he got that idea. 
It's the very same chapter that he reminded Israel, there is no God but one. Hmm. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will, not, will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Is that a bad thing? Is there anything in there that you think is in some way to be morally repudiated? Then why do we reject these practices? Well, if you're like me, you didn't even know about them, right? You've had to learn through preaching and teaching and careful examination of the Hebrew Scriptures. We begin to find out. Why would the Jews pray this? Why did Jesus more specifically pray this? Every day, twice a day. Because first we acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus in all of our actions. The Lordship of the God of Israel. Then we focus on the benefits of being in His kingdom. I want you to hear how gracious and compassionate God is. First He says, acknowledge Me as Lord. Then He begins to describe all the benefits of the kingdom. The new rain and new grain and the wine and all of those things. And then we move to Numbers. Go to Numbers 15. This is the third part of the Shema. By the way, if I asked you to right now without your Bibles, could you st stand up and repeat this? No, neither could I. But you know what? Any child in Israel, six years old, could do it and put it in its context and tell you before and after what came. Any child six years old could do that. Just be led by the Spirit, right? Hadn't we heard that in Christianity all of our lives? Just be led by the Spirit. Just be led by the Spirit. Okay. Well, I'm going to send you into a foreign land where you don't read the language, where you've never been in the city, and say, hey, just be led by the Spirit and go find every Starbucks. Right? Can God do it? Sure. But wouldn't it be nice to have a map? Why is it that we assume the Spirit and the Word would in any way contradict each other? They work together. One illuminates the other. When you wonder, is that thought the Spirit or is that God? Well, look at the Word. It will teach you. When you wonder, what does this Word mean? The Spirit is there to illuminate it. There is a symbiotic relationship between the two. And it's supposed to benefit the believer. We don't sacrifice one for the other. Look at Numbers 15. First part of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That's the first part of the Shema. The second part of the Shema is Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. The third part is Numbers 15, starting in the 37th verse. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at. All the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going to the lusts of your own heart and eyes. Then you will remember the commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. 
The Jews prayed all of this three times a day. The first thing they're doing is acknowledging God's Lordship. The second thing that they're doing is speaking of the benefits of being in His kingdom. The harvest, the rains, all of those things. The third thing they were doing was saying we need to remember His commands and be obedient. Is this so different from the Christian walk? We acknowledge the Lordship of our Messiah. He's the only owner and controller of our life, the perfect image of the invisible God. We acknowledge the benefits of being in His kingdom, credited righteousness, all of these beautiful things, sons of the kingdom. And then we try to remember each of His commands. This is a good blueprint for living. I cover this on a day of baptism because when we talk about how do I walk this faith out in Christ, you walk it out the same way in all of your actions. You remember God is the only God in your life. This means pornography cannot exist because it would be a God next to your God. This means that a lust and greed for money cannot exist because it would be a God next to your God. This means that even your own flesh and its desires for a different will than God's will cannot exist because it would be a God next to your God. And the cry of our faith is God is one. Secondly, we said, but Lord, Lord, ah, but it's not worth comparing with these light and momentary troubles with the glory that will be revealed. We think about the benefits of being in the kingdom. Then only thirdly do we think about the commands. Did you hear where that came? Let's examine how Israel got the law. I want you to hear this for a second. And don't tune me out as talking about Jews. I'm talking about the Jewish faith we've inherited. Listen to this. In Exodus 6, God says, hey, it's 6-6. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. God says, hey, I'm going to bring you out from Egypt. I'm going to free you from being slaves. I'm going to redeem you. Then I'm going to take you to be my people and I'll be your God. Right? The Jews celebrated this every year in Passover. And with each one, they drank a great big glass of wine because this was something that they were celebrating that God did that. Then after this, there's miraculous protection from each of those plagues. Right? You remember reading that in Exodus? So much so that they even get to a Red Sea and walk right through the middle of the Red Sea unscathed. Right? We're going to come back to that one. But am I wrong about this? Okay. Then they get to the waters of Marah. These are bitter waters, and God makes them sweet waters for them. Amen? Look at the next progression. Then there's manna and quail. He fed them. Then He brought water out of a rock for them. I want to recap this for you quickly. He told them, I'm going to free you from being slaves. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you to be my people. He protected them from everything that could come against them. He turned even bitter waters into sweet waters for them. He rained down food from the sky in manna and quail for them. Then He gave them water straight out of a rock. Then Amalek attacks Israel and God defends Israel. As long as Moses held up his hands, they won the battle. It was only after all of those things that God gave them commands. Isn't that amazing? I want you to get this. This salvation that we share is not about what I just don't do. It's not about rules. It's about a loving, benevolent God who has told you, if you will acknowledge Me as God, I will protect you. I'll make the bitter things sweet. I will fight against the enemies for you. I'll bring you water out of dry rocks. But when you acknowledge me as God, there are some ways that you need to do it. And He gave them the law. God did not show up with a list of rules and say, if you want to be my people, you must do these things. But isn't that exactly what we churches have done? 
For membership, this is required. You have to agree with these 14 points or 12 or 37 or whatever else. You show me a reformer that did great things that we celebrate. You show me any one of them, and I will show you a tragically flawed individual. I read about Martin Luther last night at the morning. I've been taught to esteem this man, and truly I do. It would be a mistake to disavow the wonderful revelation he gave the world. But did you know that he also said that all Jewish books should be burned, that their rabbis should be kept from speaking about God publicly or praying, and that the Jews should be huddled together into certain sections of town and prevented from worshiping God? He went on to say some things that were worse than that. That's 1534, but it sounds an awful lot like it was the year 1940, doesn't it? Men who received grace, truth from a Jewish king and hated the Jewish people. We have missed so much in this, guys. The more that we begin to dig deeply and begin to understand the Jewish faith, the more you'll understand the faith that we call Christianity that is in reality a completed Judaism. I preach and teach about it all of the time, and I know it sounds unique, but I tell you the truth, God is raising up generations that understand this. I'm reading and encountering men all over the globe that in the last 30 or 40 years, this revival has started in them. And what is the best part about it is they often have different sources than I do, different influences than I do, and yet we're all coming to the same conclusion. This is because we will live to see a day when God's renewed interest in Israel is the forefront of what's happening on the earth today. Well, why would you preach about this on a day when people are being baptized? I'd just soon get your Christian walk straight from the beginning. The Shema is not a bad thing. Turn with me to Exodus 24, 7. I want to talk to you about this religion that is so-called legalism. Tell me if you couldn't learn something from this. Did you hear what I said? Exodus what? 24. How many hours in a day? How many days in a week? 24 sevens become a euphemism for us, right? means all day, all the time, right? How, how many days a, a year is Blockbuster open? 365 is how we would say that. Kinko's is 24 seven. 24 hours a day is seven days a week. 24 seven. Y'all want to repeat that with me? 24 seven, right? Y'all think you understand that? Okay, well, we'll look at Exodus 24 seven. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord said we will obey. How often will we do everything that the Lord has said? How often will we obey? 24-7. I want you to remember this. I want you to get it ingrained in you. Exodus 24-7 is the people of Israel after God's miraculous protection after He has fed them, after He has made bitter water sweet, after He has fought against their enemies, they heard the few things that He required. And they said, we will do everything. We will obey. Should your response to the Word be any less? There are cultural customs that, as Gentiles, we don't keep. You can spend a lifetime searching these out and trying to divide the difference. What is most important is that your trust and a Jewish Messiah governs everything that you do. What you were required to do as a Gentile fear God to put aside pagan idolatry. Acts 15 affirms this, and I affirm it to you today. 
You men who are being baptized, what do I want you to get from the Shema? I want you to get that we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I want you to get that there are definite benefits for being in the kingdom. And I want you to get that His commandments are very important for you today. How often do I want you to remember this? 24-7. Exodus 24-7. I want you to remember it everywhere you go. Turn with me to uh, Numbers. Y'all awake? When you tell most pastors you're going to preach out of the Old Testament, they say, oh, you're going to put them to sleep, huh? Even the word Old Testament, how degrading is that? Do you want a new car or do you want an old car? Depends. Is it a classic? I don't know about you, but I'll take any 60s level Mustang. Super Sport Camaro. Oh, how about that Stingray Corvette? I know there's at least one man in here that knows what that's like. You want new or old? See, it's old in how you frame it. But if we tell our children, if we tell our churches the Old Testament or the New, who doesn't want New? It's not old, friends. It's the same concrete foundations. What God revealed as truth 1,600 years before Jesus was still truth in Jesus' day and is still truth today. Truth is truth is truth. It truly is universal. Mark 12.20, I'm just going to give you some scriptures about the Shema. Mark 12, 29. This is when Jesus answers in the affirmative about the Shema. Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. Paul is teaching about food sacrificed to idols. And he goes, come on, man. They're not really gods because there is only one God. He's quoting the Shema. And he's teaching it to Gentiles. John 10, 30. The Pharisees are about to stone Jesus. Do you know why? He said, the Father and I are... One And they understood because they prayed the Shema twice a day that what he was saying is that king of the kingdom that you're talking about, he and I are one. And they considered him speaking as if he were equal to God and they wanted to kill him. Isn't it funny that the very foundation of our faith is something that could get you killed in the first century? In certain parts of the world today, it would still get you killed. It's only in America that we're allowed to be decadent, fat, and lazy. Everywhere else it costs you something to be a real Christian. Here it will too if you really live it. If we quit compromising and if we truly live like He's King, it'll cost you something. But it'll never cost you any more than God will reward you. Remember, acknowledge His Lordship. See His benefits. Then come the commandments. We don't serve a God that required obedience from the onset for you to be blessed. He required trust, gave you blessings, and then taught you how to be obedient. Lordship comes first. Another one, Luke 4, 8, Jesus answers the uh, satanic temptation. I've been given all the kingdoms of the world. I can give them to anybody that I please. Jesus quotes him the Shema. He starts in the second part of the Shema, but he quotes him the Shema. Why? The foundation of Jewish life was there's only one God. This is his kingdom. I cannot take it from you. All right, y'all in number six, we're going to pick up with a different topic. First part of the message was the Shema. What did I tell you the second part was going to be in the very beginning? The Nazarite vow. How many of you know what a Nazarite is? I hope some of you do. I've been telling you all week to read it. Not to be confused with a Nazarene. Some people have said, oh, Jesus was a Nazarite. No, Jesus was from Nazareth. Jesus was most assuredly not a Nazarite. There's a, a lot of very good reasons for that. One is he touched quite a few dead bodies. They came to life when he touched them, but he did touch them. 
He also drank wine. I know that's a big shocker to people, but Jesus did. They accused him of being drunk when he drank the wine. In number six, which I have to get to, we pick up with the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. Now this is just one part. First part, nothing fermented, nothing from grapes, raisins, dates, not even their seeds, right? Did you hear that first verse though? If a man wants to make a vow, if he wants to make a special vow, what a unique thing. This is one of those phrases in Hebrew that is just hard to translate. I heard a biblical teacher that I love and I respect and I got awesome, just good manna from this guy about this subject. And even he made a mistake in the translation. But I want you to hear this. The word for special vow, the New American Standard, the updated version, not the old Nasby that everybody used, but the most recent that is updated, calls this a uh, special or difficult vow. This is because the word that is used here is polal, like P-A-L-A, or P-A-W hyphen L-A-W. Kind of interesting, like Paul and law, huh? Polal. And I want you to hear what it means. This is really, really neat. It is a verb, but it's used like an adverb. Hebrew is an interesting language. It means to do something great, to do something very difficult, to do something wonderful, or to do something extraordinary. Many modern translations are translating this special vow an extraordinary vow. Before we get into exactly what this vow is, I want to read you some other instances of this very same Hebrew word so you can put it in its context. Turn to Genesis 18. We're going to flip through a few here quickly. Come on, brother, there. Who else is there? Come on, when are you all all going to get there? In Genesis 18, <laughs> look at the 14th verse. I'm sorry, look at the 13th verse. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That phrase, Is anything too hard for the Lord? is a word, polal, that means, is anything too miraculous? Is anything too difficult? Is anything too extraordinary? Is anything too wondrous, marvelous for the Lord? What's the rhetorical answer? No. But think about it in the context of the Nazarite vow. If any Israelite, whether man or woman, wants to make a special vow, a difficult vow, a wondrous vow, a miraculous vow, an extraordinary vow, how about that? We're already talking about a people who are in covenant with God. They're already peculiar. they got these long locks on the side of their head. They eat only certain foods. They dress certain ways. And yet, if they want to go just a step further into the miraculous, there is a way to do it. 
How interesting is that? Come on, that doesn't intrigue you just a little bit? You want to hear another use of the word? How about Exodus 34.10? Pastor, you cover too much Scripture. You can't cover too much Scripture. The church will just get better educated. Tell me, Exodus 34.10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. When God says He's going to do a wonder that's never been done in any nation, not anywhere in the world, you know what word He uses? Polol. He uses the same word for that special vow. Those of you that really want to get a studious about this, in your Strong's, it's number 6381. You can look it up and see if Pastor lies to you. I rarely do that when I preach. Lie to you. In Joshua 3.5, he says, I'm going to do amazing things. Amazing. Same word. In 1 Chronicles 16.24, he says, I'm going to do marvelous things. Are you getting the impression that the Nazarite vow is a very special thing then? Do you think that the English word special might not be quite adequate? Now, I'm not a Bible translator. How dare I correct the NIV? I'm not. I'm saying it's a difficult thing to translate. But when you begin to hear all the other words, the, the way that the word's used, you get, begin to build a concept, don't you? We're talking about a very, very, very special thing. That wouldn't be very academic to write it that way, though, huh? If you want to make a very, 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 very special vow, right? Everybody throw it away and say, who wrote that? Some idiot? And yet, that's exactly what it's trying to say. A very special vow. Go back to number six. Let's talk about this. We're going to baptize people today. That's called, you get, would get baptized in a mikvah. That's the third part of this message that we're going to get to. You'd be making a pledge, another kind of vow. I want you to understand the pillars of Judaism in the Shema. Acknowledging God and His Lord. Living like you want His blessing and being aware of His commands. I want you to understand what it means to make a very special vow before God. Turn with me... You're in number six, aren't you? What was the first thing that we're not going to do? We're not going to drink wine and we're not going to drink what? Oh my goodness, there is a difference. My brother Craig's taking the first step to becoming a Nazarite. (laughs) Taking a vow not to touch this stuff. I love you for that, Craig. Verse 5. During the entire period of his vow of separation... No razor may be used on his head. How do you feel about that one, Craig? Now, we're going to cut Craig's hair. (laughs) He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let his hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. All right, so first, for argument's sake, we're going to simplify it and say no wine. Second, we're going to say we got these hair restrictions. Sounding like the Pentecostal church, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Third, we can't go near a dead body. That was the last part of the joke I didn't have the guts to tell. Whew. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them. Are you all catching up with me? See, if you can't go near something dead, you couldn't go into a church that had... Okay. Because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head... 
throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. Now, we got some interesting issues going on here. First off, you're not going to be able to drink wine. You're not even going to be able to touch anything that has yeast from grapes or from dates or from raisins in it. Well, the Passover you're going to have a problem with, right? Because there's wine in it. In fact, almost every Jewish meal you're going to have a pretty big problem with. Could that separate you from people? Hmm. Well, there's another issue, though. You can't go near anything that's dead. Nothing. Well, that's okay. Hospice will take care of them. No, there's no hospice. Well, that's okay. Your friends can visit them at the hospital and tell you how it went. No, no hospitals. I want you to begin to picture what this is like. You're no longer able to participate in table fellowship, in religious festivals, in the same way that all of your community has done. If you're in South Louisiana, this means no crawfish, no blues festival, no strawberry festival, none of the 300 festivals we used to have there. I'm still learning all Texas festivals. You're withdrawing from this part of society. Then secondly, mom, dad, brother, sister, daughter, cousin dies. You can't even go near. Can't say goodbye. Can't get near them. Is that beginning to sound like devoted? Sound like a little denial of self in there? Maybe putting God's will, whatever it is, no matter how strange or serious, way above your will and your desire? Huh. If someone dies suddenly in his presence, I'm sorry, let's pick back up at uh, verse 7. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because of the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated, he must shave his head on the day of his cleansing, the seventh day, then on the eighth bring two doves, two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burn offering to make atonement for him because he sinned by being in the presence of a dead body. Look at verse 12. He must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of his separation. He must bring a year old man, lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count. This is a really interesting problem. You're not going to drink wine, right? And all the other things that go with it. You're going to have your head shaved and then let it grow, not let anything touch it. You're not going to go near any dead body at any time, no matter who it is. Did anybody see how long this vow was? No? You didn't see it? Not there. Some say, oh, it's seven days. Some say 30. There's records of them being seven years, and then we know of a few that were lifetime. Can you think of a lifetime Nazarite? Samson, he's one. Can you think of another? I'll give you a hint. It's in the book of Samuel. Oh, there we go, Samuel. Some say John the Baptist was. That's pretty hard to prove, but certainly alluded to in the Scripture. I want you to hear something. You make a vow, right? Let's say that like Bernice, she's a famous queen. You make a vow and it's going to be seven years, right? Seven years. Does that sound like a good vow to you? Seven years, you're going to abstain from all of these things. Be separate. Be different. Why? To be devoted to the Lord. You get to the sixth year. We're going to, for argument's sake, say we're in the solar calendar, which we wouldn't be, but why confuse things? 363rd day. 
of the sixth year, right? Just about to fulfill that vow. Oops, I was praising and worshiping next to Steve. He dropped dead. What happens with your vow? And at great cost to you. You've got to go find two birds of this kind, two birds of that kind. got to go find a lamb. And it starts all over. Is this a pretty serious vow? Yeah. It'd be hard to keep, wouldn't it? Pick up in the 13th verse. Now this is the law for the Nazarite when the period of separation is over. He is to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. <laughs> for argument's sake, let's keep our seven-year vow, right? We're going to start it. What are we going to do? We're going to bring David up here. We're going to shave his head. Wouldn't that be a great sermon example? David wouldn't be willing. I shaved Judah's head. No. It's already shaved. Bring him up here. Shave his head. Announce to everybody. Record in the temple records. This guy is going to be devoted to the Lord. Now, let's imagine for a second Keith and Ashley are walking along with their little guy. He says, Mom, what's this dude doing? Oh, he's shaving his head. Why? Thought we Jews didn't cut our hair short and look like that. Well, he wants to be especially devoted to the Lord. Mom, Dad, why? Well, because this is a very special, miraculous, awesome, wondrous vow that you can take for God. Mom, Dad, why aren't you doing it? Uh, uh, ask your mother. Can you imagine? Shaved at the entrance to the temple, the most important place in Jewish life. Did God intend for this to be conspicuous? Yeah, He wanted conspicuous, not in... Yeah. yeah. Let me choose another word. Did He want it to be obvious, blatant to everybody? Yes. Yes. Verse 14. There he is to present his offering to the Lord. I want you to hear this offering. <laughs> a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering. Together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket made of bread without yeast cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil and wafers spread with oil. Now you read that and we go, oh, I pick all that up at Walmart. You are a first century Israelite. You've had your head shaved at the temple in front of everybody to show that you're devoted to God. You've separated yourself from your friends, from your family, from your closest affiliations during the most joyous of events because you can't have wine. You can't eat the bread. You can't be around those things. Along the way, friends and family have died. You couldn't attend because you were devoted to God. Now, seven years later, with hair like a hippie, I know somewhere out there some kid is happy about that, right? In the Bible, Mom, I can do it. You know, God wants me to have hair like Van Halen. Back in the day, Van Halen had long hair. Now I think they've all fallen out. And you look up in the distance, and what do we see walking towards the temple? Somebody with long, scraggly hair carrying lots of animals. Is that peculiar? It's pretty peculiar. You think God wanted them to... Peculiar, there's a better word than conspicuous, right? Is that something that God wanted everybody to see? Sure. Let's talk about the cost of these things for a second. 
Today, you go to the stockyard. You can buy a goat for I don't know how much. hundred bucks. In this day, though, a goat would feed lots of people. And its milk would provide cheese and nourishment for your kids and all kinds of other things. Some have said that this sacrifice that we're talking about would be the equivalent of a couple hundred thousand dollars if multiplied out to today. Is that a miraculous vow? Is that a supernatural vow? Is that a difficult vow? Something marvelous? Hmm. Let's keep reading, and then I want to ask you a question about that. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burn offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord together with its grain and the drink offering. How about that? He takes care of your sin, provides a way for you to fellowship, and then asks for something from you in return. That's what you get if you read those sacrifices in order. Then at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite may shave off his hair that he has dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of his fellowship offering. Only to God could burnt hair smell good. This morning, I had a little string on my shirt. You can see just a little bit of it still sticking out there. And I don't know why I had a lighter laying around. Perhaps Matthew had been over here. But I grabbed this lighter. <laughs> and I went to burn this little thing, right? Can y'all see that? It was this long when it started. Now, this seemed like a perfectly good idea at the time. <laughs> Apparently, shirts are not made from materials that I thought they were made from because this ignited as if we could put it in our cars and solve the fuel problem. And it shot straight up my arm. This was not a Holy Ghost Pentecost kind of fire. This was more of a hell damnation kind of fire. And I did everything I could to put that thing out before it burned my arm. Now, congratulations, Pastor made it here with both arms intact, but it filled the house with an aroma I would call a stench. God is in the business of taking what stinks to men and making it clean, pure, and holy. You know what He requires to do it? Marvelous supernatural dedication. That's what He wants from you. Those are just a way to find out where your heart really is. In America, we say we love Him, but we deny Him by our actions. Church, we proclaim Him as our only God, and yet we allow God's people who will be supernaturally devoted to Him regardless of the cost. Who will sell everything they have to follow Him. That's what He wants. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place it in his hand, place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram. Boiled shoulder of the ram. Got it right here, okay? Because I'm your priest this morning. And a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. I got a ram's shoulder in this hand. Where am I going to put the cake? The other hand. Oh. And so I'm going to stand there with the cake in one hand and the shoulder of the ram. I'm going to wave them before the Lord. To show with this act of Give up as much as He gave up. He doesn't ask you friends, to sacrifice anything he wasn't willing to sacrifice himself. What do you think that that might symbolize? 
a priest holding these things up like this. The most supernatural, spectacular, extraordinary vow you could make doesn't begin to compare with what He's already done for you. Let that sink in for a minute. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. For my friends listening on CD, if we've got a ram's shoulder in one hand and cakes in the other, we might be standing in the form of a cross. could be just a little visual image of the sacrifice that God would make. Look at that last part of the 20th verse. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. God wanted a specific time period for these people to suffer extraordinary self-denial as a way to teach, as a way to show man's greatest sacrifice to get close to him would not begin to compare with the sacrifice he made to get close to man. Did you hear me? Your greatest sacrifice to get close to God does not begin to compare with the sacrifice He made to get close to you. On this day where we're going to baptize people, Acknowledge that He is our one God. Focus on His benefits, but be aware of His commands. He sacrificed an awful lot to bring you into fellowship with Him. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation in addition to whatever else he can afford. Do you remember I told you it was almost $200,000 if you multiply it out today? But if you can afford more, what was required? More. If you had to come up with $200,000 today to show your devotion to the Lord, probably not very many of you could do it. Maybe not any of you. And yet there's a little line that says, and whatever else you could afford. Most people, if they had to come up with $200,000 in here today, let's suppose that Bobby has an extreme need this very moment, right? What would he have to do to come up with $200,000? And begin selling everything that he has, and then what would he have to do? Turn and appeal to you guys, right? His community, the community of the faithful. So this special, miraculous, wonderful, hard-to-do, difficult, extraordinary vow also required support from your community that you were kind of ostracizing yourself from, and yet they admired you for it. And so they would pitch in and help you. Would you say that they loved you if they did that? I mean, who selflessly gives of themselves so that you can be devoted to God? Who would do something like that? Let's turn to Acts 21. Are you all excited? We're going to the New Testament. Yeah. You already got that memorized though, right? When I say Acts 21, you say, I know right what you're talking about, Eric. That letter Luke wrote, got it memorized. It's written to Theophilus, but boy, I got it down. Just so that you don't make the person on your right or left feel intimidated, let's go ahead and turn there so you can read it. I don't want you to quote it verbatim and make everybody else feel inferior to you. Y'all there? there? So in Acts 21, Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. At Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. What was James the pastor of? Jerusalem church. How do we know that? Acts 15 shows us. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Sounds like he's praising God for people like us getting born again. 
When they heard this, they praised God. Were the Jews happy to see Gentiles get saved? Yes. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. How many Jews have what? Believed what? In the Jewish Messiah. And yet they're still zealous for the law. Why? Because they're Jews. Right? The Gentiles got born again apart from the law. They weren't given the law. But the Jews got saved within the framework of the law because they were given the law. How many Jews have believed and are zealous for the law? They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? What do you mean, what shall we do? I mean, this is exactly what I was taught Paul did. They're treating it as if it's a lie. What shall we do? This was a slanderous rumor. Paul taught Gentiles did not have to be circumcised and follow Jewish rituals. He never taught that Jews didn't have to do them. Never. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. wonder what kind of vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their... What are those words? Y'all help me. I'm having trouble seeing it. Their head shaved. Four men. And what did they want Paul to do? Go join with them and pay their expenses. It was hard to raise the money for one. Paul took from what he had among the Gentiles, apparently, for the benefit of the Jews to show that he was a zealous Jew just like they were, and he paid these men's expenses. Paul certainly wouldn't have done that if he was against the law. I want you to hear the Christian charity demonstrated in this. Did Paul have to do this? No. But he was willing that he would die that his people might live. How much do you care about your brother on your left and right? Would you pay the expenses even for a week for four people? But I don't have it. Does this speak of sacrifice? Now, I know everybody wants to know, was Paul taking the vow himself? Was he a Nazarite? Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took them in, purified himself along with them. Then they went to the temple to give notice of the dates of the purification, when the purification would end and the offering that would be made for each of them. You had to be purified to stand in the temple. You had to show that you were ritually clean. It says their heads were shaved. It didn't say Paul's was shaved. Some people have pointed to that and say, well, Paul just did this for those unbelieving Jews to be all things to all men. Turn with me to Acts 18. Tell me when you're there. Acts 18. Y'all already know all this. Should we shut it down now or do you want to know how it ends? You sure? For only now. I'm kidding. I'd rather be struck dead than do that. And that's on tape. <laughs> Paul stay, Acts 18.18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his 
Well, I'm sure he just, it was hot. At Centuria, uh-oh, because of... Hmm. Now, if we just had to speculate, what kind of vow could this be? Well, uh, undoubtedly, there was some Greek, Stoic, Epicurean vow he could take. No? There's only one vow in all the world where people had to shave their head and do these things? Oh, that's right, Paul was a Jew. We forget that sometimes, don't we? Isn't it reasonable to assume that if Paul was a Jew and the only vow the Jews took recorded in Scripture where they shaved their head was the Nazarite vow, that it's possible that he was taking a Nazarite vow? This is an area of extraordinary debate among scholars. You know why? Have you ever had a long-held belief that somebody challenged and the evidence was shoved right in your face over and over and over, but all you could see is it can't be that, it can't be that, it can't be that, You know why people don't want to accept that Paul took part in Jewish festivals, Jewish vows? Because they've misunderstood his writings and taught that he hated the law. And they don't want that uprooted, unseated. But our topic here today is baptism. So how does this refer to baptism? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to close with our baptism scriptures. Tell me when you're in 1 Peter. Don't give up on me now. We're too close to... With the Shema, I want you to understand in your daily life, your prayer, your actions, your attitude need to acknowledge God's Lordship in your life by way of your trust in Yeshua, the Messiah. I want you to realize there are benefits and that that's your motivation. You love the Lord and there are benefits for being holy. Lastly, I want you to realize there are, in fact, requirements. That's what the Shema I had hoped would teach you today. Today, when we were looking at the Nazarite vow, I wanted you to know there is tremendous cost in being separate for God. It causes an immediate distinction between you and everyone else. You hear me, Judah? Making a vow to God means that you are distinct from everyone else. And lastly, it requires tremendous devotion. God may ask for everything that you have. You learn these things from the Jewish culture that our faith sprang from. Today I want to talk to you about New Testament baptism for a moment because this too is a vow, acknowledging His Lordship, realizing benefits, and walking forth in obedience. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in the 18th verse, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. What's our story setting? The entire world is coming under the judgment of God. Even the powers in the heavenlies were being judged in Genesis 6. Those are the spirits in prison. In eight people out of the entire world were saved because of their obedience and their devotion to God. 
took Noah a long time to build that boat. But was it worth it? There is no sacrifice you will ever make that begins to compare to the sacrifice God has already made for you. A few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because He who has suffered in His body is done with sin. As a result, He does not live the rest of His earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. First and foremost, you men who are being baptized here today are taking a vow before the God of heaven and the men who are witnesses. I will not live the rest of this earthly life for sinful desires. I will live it for heaven's desires. And like the Jews before you that prayed twice a day the Shema, you will acknowledge the Lordship of God in everything that you do because the benefits far outweigh the obligations. His commands are few. The benefits are eternal. People have broken down into arguments over the method and mode of baptism for centuries. Wars have been fought over it. Constantine actually took entire villages, forced them to go through rivers at the point of a sword, and declared them to be baptized. In idol Christianity today, we're... We would rather sit around and teach philosophies about God than actually get out and do it. The most useful thing we can do is argue about whether or not the water closes over your head or we sprinkled it at you or poured it out of a bowl. I'm fully convinced in my heart that what matters is the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And if you've been dunked ten times or sprinkled twenty and the pledge of a good conscience towards God has proven to be a lie, do it again until you get it right. The water doesn't save you. He's looking for that outward sign of the inward change. They took the Nazarite vow at the most public place in Israel, the temple. We baptize you here today right out beside a road. It's the most public place I can get that I could find a way to set up a kiddie pool for a baptism. I deliberately don't want to do it in the walls of a church. I want the world to see the commitment that you're making. I want you to be held accountable for it, and I want it to mean something. wish we could have convened the whole neighborhood. Turn with me to Colossians 2. Two more Scriptures and we close. But I didn't tell you how long the Scriptures were. Play a good conscience. Eric, if you don't care whether we sprinkle or dunk or... Water hose, you don't care what we do, then why would you go through the trouble of setting up a pool? For one reason. That Nazarite vow had tremendous imagery involved, right? The priest standing with offerings in his right hand and his left, making the form of a cross. A man with long hair that could be pointed out from a distance. A man with a shaved head that could be pointed out from a distance. Things that people could see because we are visual learners. I believe that by taking you underneath the water, no miracle occurs. I believe that there is no method, no form, no magic incantation that will change you. I believe it is the pledge of a good conscience. But I think imagery is important. 
And if I could put you in a six-foot grave full of water and pull you out, I would, because the Word teaches we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised from that death into a new life. And in Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, our one God. You have been given fullness in Christ who is the head of every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the old sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead... We'll read you the rest in another passage. What is happening today is Judah and Adam and Craig and Cody and Brandon and whoever else gets baptized. They are literally saying, I am being lowered into a watery grave that the old man may be cut away from my life and all that remains is my pledge of a good conscience towards God. I will be resurrected in a new life today and in the life to come. You understand what I'm saying? A new life today and in the life to come. Today, we count ourselves dead to the flesh. There will be a day when the dead flesh exists no longer and you will only be glorified. Romans 6, that I'm not going to read you, teaches us that sin will not have mastery over us anymore because we count ourselves dead to it through baptism into Christ's death. And we walk alive in His resurrection. That's what we do here today. Through your Shema, through your Nazarite vow, and through your baptism, I'm trying to teach you about devotion to God. Would you agree that that Nazarite vow was given to a specific people group? I mean, after all, what does it mean to us to grow our hair long or cut it short? It means you're in a rock band or not, right? In my lifetime, I remember a group named Metallica cut off their hair and the whole teenage scene went crazy over it. It means very little to us. It's a fashion statement. But in that culture, it meant an awful lot. So, as we close here today, some are taking a vow of baptism, a pledge of a good conscience towards God. And some aren't. But I want to ask you, if you wanted to be specially, miraculously, wonderfully devoted to God, what would your Nazarite vow look like? What is He asking of you? In what way can you deny yourself for Him? He didn't want you to live in a burlap sack and drive a Volkswagen. It's not what He's asking. But every person has a different thing that they need to lay aside for Him and for the glory of His kingdom. What does your Nazarite vow look like today? Have you grabbed hold of the I'm blessed gospel and that's all you think God is about? Do you think your sacrifice to Him outweighs His sacrifice to you? Saints, I want you to consider as we stand and pray. Some are being baptized. They made their decision. They're going to proclaim it before this whole subdivision in our church. But what does your Nazarite vow look like today? I know I've got a brother in the back that's given up alcohol for the glories of the kingdom of God. Amen. That's a good thing. That may not be Matthew or Adam's Nazarite vow. Somebody else might give up television. I did for years. Does that surprise you all? But it's not my Nazarite vow today. What is He asking of you? And then decide that no cost is too high. Y'all stand to your feet. Let's pray.